Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey everybody and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host Max Cantor and I am very excited about the guest that I have on the show today. Now he is an improviser who started at IO Theater and actually studied under Del Close. And along with Ian Roberts, Matt Walsh, and Amy Poehler, he's a founder of the Sketch and Improv Theater, the Upright Citizens Brigade. Finally, he's appeared on many, many a television show and all these different types of movies, and today hosts his own improvised podcast entitled Improv for Humans. So please welcome to the show, Matt Besser. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you, Max. And Matt, I have to ask you, because in our email correspondence, uh, sometimes you would sign your name just Besser. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, at at what point in your life did you realize that you could just go by your last name? Because I'm still on like a first name recognition basis. Well, as soon as my one of my comedy partners was uh, was named Matt, I guess. So that was yeah. about 1990. Matt Walsh and I were always working together. So uh, everybody called him Walsh and called me Besser. Oh, okay. So, well, that worked out. So when I'm in court... That's a Los Angeles plane right above us and a helicopter. Um, but yeah, we, when you're working with someone with the same name, uh, it goes to your last name. So <laughs> did, was there ever a moment? It's not like Madonna or Prince. I didn't just go down to one name for my ego. Did you want to keep Matt? Like, did you miss that? Or were you like, okay, like I like the last name best or like, I'm fine with this. I'm fine with Besser. I was Matthew as a kid, then I went to college and somehow became Matt. Hmm. Moved to Chicago and became Besser. Oh, um, but uh, yeah. Is for there... sign off, I always think it's weird to put two names down for some reason. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I I I, I agree with that. It's it's very formal. It's very formal. You think you're ever going to have another yes. name change in your career? Um. Well, I just started the podcast, Professor Besser. So. People want to call me the professor. I'm good with that. The professor. I like that. Now that sounds, I feel more, even more formal than a first or last name. Well, if you're just the professor, it sounds more like a rapper name. I think that's, that's true. But when you're professor Besser, one, it rhymes. So it, it it's very like yeah. sing songy, but then it's like, uh, everyone ha- ultimately they have to have respect for you. Because you're a professor, like they have no choice. I'll I'll, I'll get it somehow. <laughs> just by the name. And to, uh, to, now to talk to a little bit about when you were a kid. You said you grew up. Everyone called you Matthew. Uh, what late night talk shows or television or influences did you have as a kid that really got you started looking at comedy and realizing that you liked it? Well. I'll be honest. I I I, uh, I was more. I was never a Johnny Carson guy. I care less about Johnny Carson. Um, and that's I guess where I started. And then there was Letterman. And I loved Letterman. But what I really loved about Letterman was Chris Elliott. I would say if I had an influence from talk shows, it would be Chris Elliott. And he had this character called the man from under the stairs that's the first character of his i I remember Mm -hmm. and and i felt like that was the first thing i saw in talk shows that seemed 
I don't know if the word dangerous is correct, but just like something new and really broke the format. And it was character and sketchy. And I always found the, the and I still find panel discussions in, in general, except for certain types of uh, people are kind of boring. Um, so I was always, and that's why I liked uh, Conan would be the, the second influence and where the UCB started our career kind of was on the Conan show, but he obviously, I'm sure he was inspired in the same way by Letterman because he kind of went that entire direction with his show mm -hmm. of going more for the uh, sketch and, and the postmodern and that kind of thing rather than relying on the witty banter with the guest. Mm -hmm. And with Chris Elliott, like the man under the stairs, not only was like what you said, that's very like breaking the format. It was also, it was just, it was silly. It was absurd. Did you like that absurdness and that silliness that not only Chris Elliott, but Letterman brought to his show? Yeah. I mean, I like the sarcasm of David Letterman. I, I can think of, and I also like the guys on the show that broke the format, um, like on Andy Kaufman being the most obvious. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of Letterman Ever, and I'm sure a lot of people remember it, and I happened to see it live with the, the time Crispin Glover went on. And, uh, and he was on as himself, but he was acting, he was dressed completely weird and seemed like he was hopped up on something. I don't think he was. I think he's just a nut in general. <laughs> he was acting all manic and he, was, and he was like, I can't remember how they got into it. He, he challenged Letterman to arm wrestle him and then he had, he stood up and I'm pretty sure he had him like or something and he, and he did like a kick towards Letterman. He was like, I am strong. I can kick. Yeah. Um, this is all in my vague memory of it, but uh, and it really pissed off Letterman. Like no joke, it wasn't planned at all, and he and you could tell he was pissed off. And I think he walked off. Pretty sure Letterman walked away. It was moments like that. I was like, wow, this is really happening. Mm -hmm. It's 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 cool. it's kind of ironic too how you were saying how you've never liked like panels or interviews and Letterman's show in its entirety it never seemed like he liked the interviews either. I know. So uh, I always liked it when he was when he didn't like someone or he's <laughs> perturbed you could see it versus someone like Jay Leno who's just a complete phony. Right. You could barely tell if he was even listening to the interviews at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, Letterman was present, and if he didn't pick you, he let it, you could tell him there's something entertaining to that as well. Right. There are so many, there's a litany of examples that you could go through uh, all the way up until he retired, where he has a guest on, and even though it's his job to, to interview, you, he, he, you can see it all over his face. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't care about what the person has to talk about. He doesn't find it interesting. But then on the flip side, when he had a guest on that he like loved, like when he would get like Bill Murray on or Steve Martin or uh, Julia Roberts, people who he like genuinely cared about, his charisma and the way he lighted up and the way he just involved and cared so much about the person, that's, uh, that's what 
drew me to him was his passion for it but yeah like like you say it was hilarious it's it is hilarious how you can see he when he didn't like somebody he did not like them yeah i uh um i don't know if you include howard stern in your discussions i know it's not late night tv but it is a very similar format oh for sure in the morning um but i think many people agree like Howard's the best interviewer because he doesn't care if the question makes you uncomfortable um, or is too probing. Whereas most most those late night guys are too nice and want to have the star back, so they would never be they would never dig too deep or broach something that might be too uncomfortable. You know, unless the guest was in the news for something was specifically on the show for that reason. Mm-hmm, right. Um, but Howard, he'll he'll even you know today he he will he will bring up something that's twenty years old if he if he thinks it's it's interesting and not enough people talk about it or something. Mm-hmm, right. So it's like so I'm not against interesting interviews, but I just feel like most of them just do the most boring interviews, and I think. I think even Conan would agree with that. I think that's why he's a just tired of it. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, and people are so, and just because you're a good actor doesn't mean you have interesting life or interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what all those guys are saddled with. They have to have the actor that has their project coming out, but they might be a complete bland idiot. <laughs> Um, off screen just mm-hmm. because they're a great actor so what why does that mean they have an interesting story to tell mm-hmm. we, we played on my podcast a couple weeks ago uh, this famous Dick Cavett interview he did with this uh, I, I should have the name but it, it was this young actor and young actress who had just debuted in their uh, their first film together and and they were stars of the film, but they were so so lifeless. Mm-hmm. And they answered every question with a with the one word answer: yeah, no, kinda, like those kind of answers. Mm-hmm. And it was funny to hear Dick Cavett, you know, like the most intelligent interviewer of all time, probably, um, uh, get annoyed and start to quip at him. And Mel Brooks was also <laughs> on the show perhaps one of the greatest guys to be interviewed of that era. And uh, he starts giving him a hard time too. But it's like these two, it was a perfect example of what I'm talking about, of like these two people are stars of movies and this is their opportunity to impress America and instead they're just lifeless pieces Mm -hmm. of crap. They got nothing to say. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And I can't stand it. Something else that bothers me about interviews is not just when it's like a terrible guest. It's when the interview is so scripted. And that might be like my love for improv because I like it when it's off the top of your head. It's one of the reasons why I loved Craig Ferguson as an interviewer uh, because he would just start of every show or not every show, but every interview. He would just tear up his cards and it was a natural conversation. And that I truly appreciate that when people can just talk to each other because and they improvise it and they make it up as they go. That's where it's genuine. I feel. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
Yeah, and Howard, Howard has that same thing. And mm. what ha- the I hope I don't talk. The truth is, Howard Stern has influenced me more than these people are talking about. But uh, um, he also has an hour if he wants to to talk to someone, whereas most of these guys have seven minutes. Right. And so, so it is a little harder to do something in seven minutes. You know, you don't have time to meander about. Um, that's why I guess I don't like that format. I, I just never. And, you know, back in my 20s, when I used to, when I was awake, you know, after midnight every day, and I was watching all those shows, there were, I would tune into a show based on who the guest was. I would rarely just tune into some show every night mm-hmm. um, based on the host. But until Conan came around, and I felt like everyone felt that way when he first started, of like, oh, this is new. And this is the first third of the show, at least. And in the middle segment, we're all sketched. So it's kind of like watching a sketch show in a talk show format. Mm-hmm. You said you said Howard Stern has probably influenced you more than any other person we're talking about. Have you ever had the opportunity to meet him? No, and I'm a big enough fan to know I probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. I know, like, I'm not one of those guys that's like, I really wish I could be on the Howard Stern show because I know what's good on the Howard Stern show and it's not my kind of personality. Like, <laughs> you know, he wants people with more... He wants people that have fucked up in big ways yeah, or, you know, or, or uh, have some big drama going on or they're superstars or something like that. So I don't, like... I don't really fit that. You know, I wouldn't mind shaking his hand, I guess, but I also know him well enough to know he wouldn't like that. He'd hate that. So <laughs> I don't mind uh, being a fan of his from afar. Um, I have been on the wrap-up show and talked to Baba Bowie, so that's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, And I've heard comedians that I'm friends with or even fans of be on his show and totally eat it. So I know yeah. uh, I should probably stay away from that chair. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. I know you got started uh, with stand-up uh, when you were in college, but did you ever venture into comedy before college when it comes to stand-up or improv or sketch? Well, I started out with my own radio show, I guess you could say, in college that counts. And it was a uh, punk rock show, really, mm. supposed to be. Mm. It was the, my first one was 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. And it being that time, there was I had zero supervision. <laughs> so we would just get drunk and high and do whatever the hell we wanted. And it... it and when you have four hours to kill, you get bored with playing records. So it, it would uh, evolve into us just trying to be funny and at times maybe being funny. Mm-hmm. And and I actually started to get fans that would tune in every week and tell me how funny I was. And I'd never really even considered doing that as a living or anything. But when you have people complimenting you and tuning in and becoming fans, you're like, oh, maybe I could do this. So. I, uh, that, that's what gave me the bug to, of, Hey, maybe I could be a Howard Stern or a stand up. And I also was in college during the stand up boom of the eighties. So there was a lot of that going around of the dream of getting into comedy being accessible. 
Mm. How did you make the jump from stand-up into improv? Because I know they're two completely different art forms. Uh, so how did you make that jump? Well, I uh, I didn't really know about improv when I first started. Um, that would be 1989. It wasn't popular then, the kind we do now. And I... Uh, I, so I didn't even really know about it when I moved to Chicago. I'd go see sketch shows at Second City, and they have the improv set. But I didn't know there were full theaters like the Improv Olympic, as it was called back then. I mentor Del Close until I got there. I didn't even know the, the, the art form existed, really. So as soon as I saw it, I knew I could do that better than I could do stand-up. I knew it played into my skill set more. I needed, I wanted to bounce off of someone else versus just coming out of my own mouth. Um, you know, I, I like doing both. I, I felt like my future is, is probably in this area. So uh, as soon as I saw it, I wanted to learn it. And I knew it was something you had to learn too versus stand up as something you just do over and over until you get better. I knew there was some method that I couldn't figure out just by watching it. Mm-hmm. Back when I watched, I was like, "What? How the hell are they doing this? I don't get this. Someone teach me this." Mm-hmm. So the biggest difference you think between stand up and improv is that improv has to be taught, but stand up it's all about repetition. <laughs> um, learning it, there's not much you can do to teach some stand up. Mm-hmm. I could probably give a nice ninety minute. The lecture on it, maybe, but after that, I'm not sure what there is to teach. But improv, there's a lot, a lot of different techniques that go into how you improvise. Um, and it, it took me at least two years to, to the point where I was like, oh, I'm finally getting this. And it's making sense. It's just a whole other uh, art form. You're not anything where you're dealing with other people rather than just yourself. It's going to be a little different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And studying under Del Close at that time, did you realize that, I mean, you were being taught by someone that would one day be the biggest name in improv? Was that a realization then? What was it like to be taught by him? Well, since he he's the man who basically invented it in a way, uh, I guess we understood how important he was at the time because there was no one else. It's not like we were like, well, we can go to San Francisco and learn from this other guy. Like we knew this guy was teaching this unique thing. Um, and, and we kind of made it our mission once he died to, to make his name important and famous. Like we have our Del Close marathon we do every year. We have 72 hours straight of, improv with groups from all over the country and uh, things like that that we felt were important because we felt like nobody does know this name, including maybe some of your listeners. Mm. Hmm. I see. Okay. I see what you're saying. And, and studying, I mean, I feel like you learned so much from him, but if you could take one thing that you learned from him that you think has impacted your career the most, what would it, what would it be? Um, one thing, well, this thing we call finding the game of the scene, mm. something we've uh, really focused our curriculum around. But uh, it's just, in, in short, 
in very short, it's it's just a way of focusing the comedy in a scene. Like when you see, usually when you see a new sketch group or a new improv group, they seem kind of silly and unfocused and all over the place. And uh, it takes discipline and technique to focus yourself where you can improvise a scene that's as funny as a written sketch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of what you write about in in the improv manual that you co-wrote a lot of the things you wrote about in that was that from what you learned from Del Close or was that kind of developed on your own over time well he was very much a uh, visionary and an artist and and uh, but not the most focused guy like it wasn't his concern wasn't to make his teaching as under, understandable as it was to always be coming up with something new. In other words, every class may start, instead of following up on what he taught the last class, it might just be working on an idea that he came up with when he was high reading a, a science fiction book the night before. And he would have forgotten what he had worked on with us the week before. So there was no, there was no logical curriculum or ladder of learning with Dell. You were just, it was just up to following his weekly whim. Sometimes you learn nothing and sometimes you learned everything. Um, and he would say the same. Sometimes it works, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But we were more concerned with codifying, you know, and that's what our, our improv comedy manual does is just codify and really try to lay out and make logical all these uh, techniques and methods that, that he came up with. Mm. I see. And you eventually... So, so to the short answer is I think we took what he, what he gave us and we made it a little more understandable. Okay. Okay. And eventually you took what he said and you got together with Ian and, and other Matt and Amy and you guys formed the Upright Citizens Brigade. But what made you want to start your own theater instead of just like working to join an already an existing theater? Like what did you feel was missing in the comedy market that you could provide? Well, outside of Chicago this kind of improv was not being done anywhere else. Mm. When we moved to New York in 1996, and we did not move to New York with the intention of opening a theater. We moved there trying to get our uh, sketch show on Comedy Central, which we eventually did, but we were just going there to do showcases. But we also did improv while we were, we were there in addition to our sketch showcases, and I think it was something that stood out as being even more unique than our sketch was this kind of improv we were doing. It was unique to New York. We did not have the intention of opening a theater. So it just, we were kind of asked to in a way by the community. We, people wanted to learn what we were teaching and we started teaching classes and classes led to shows and shows led to a need to open a theater. I just can't, I can't even imagine opening a theater. Did, did you, were you business savvy? Like, did you know how to run a theater at the time? Uh, if you really follow history, I'm not sure we even know how to run a theater yeah. up till today. It's, yeah. it's nothing we, I never wanted to get into the theater business. 
if I get called, anytime I get called a founder of a theater or whatever, it's not what I want to be. I am a comedian. I'm a comic actor. I don't really feel like a theater owner. It's just come about, it's just come about so organically. And there's none of, none of the four of ours, uh, number one, uh, career goal or anything. So it's difficult. It's hard to run a theater. We find out there's a new problem and a new, you know, there's new issues and problems and things to deal with every single year. And you, you think it would get easier, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Wow. I I mean, and you guys have been running it. What year was Upright Citizens Brigade founded? The theater started in 98. So it's been 20 years this year that you've been a part of it, running it. That's that's a long time. That's two decades. <laughs> yeah. That, wow. And I mean... It, do you ever take a moment? Because I mean, like when I when I explain to friends about uh, improv in America, I, the, what I always go to is explaining to them about Second City, and then explaining to them about Upright Citizens Brigade, and then explaining to them about the Groundlings. Those are like the three that I hit. And so, is there ever a moment? But you know what, Groundlings and Second City, you should take out of that because they don't. Groundlings barely does any improv. Oh. They, and Second City only does improv as sets after their sketch show. They don't have any just full improv shows, or they rarely had any through the years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it should be Improv Olympic. Ah. And even maybe The Annoyance and uh, the UCB or something like that. But uh, I think Second City gets too much credit mm-hmm. for improv. They were the enemy of improv. They kicked our guru Del Close out of Second City. He had classic debates with the the man who ran Second City, and that that guy Sheldon Patinkin didn't think that. Uh, or I'm sorry, Bernie Sollins didn't think that uh, improv could work on stage. He ran Second City for decades. He uh, debated Del to his deathbed on that. Um. So uh, don't give Second City credit for improv. They're the enemy of improv. Wow. You can give, you can give them all the sketch credit you want. Yeah. They've definitely added to that legacy. But those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And they battled improv and Del Close for so many years that I, it, I, anytime I hear them get credit, I'm like, but why? Why give them credit? Mm, right. <laughs> they did nothing but thwart all those years right well now now that you've explained this to me i feel like it's sheer brand recognition that's what it is and it's name recognition yeah and miss and people misusing the word improv right you go to second city tonight they're not doing any improv they'll do a a set at the end of their sketch show perhaps and even that when in the days when i was there it wasn't even that wasn't completely improvised sometimes like it was they were working on things mm-hmm. right so it was almost they were more working on skits than they were improvising in the moment right wow i mean i feel wow i i feel like you just gave me this entire epiphany like i've been looking at life the wrong way this whole time <laughs> and now i'm changed well, now, now my eyes are open well it's it's common and and like i said we 
UCB, we didn't invent anything. Uh, Dell invented it, but we we did we brought it to New York. Like Marco Polo brought silk from China. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't make the silk; he just brought it there. Right. But uh, but let's not give Second City credit for that. No, they were no, just making sketch and groundlings to this day. I don't know what they're doing over there in Wise, but uh, and give them all the credit for sketch and both those places have supplied SNL over the years more than any other theaters, but uh, don't give them credit for improv. <laughs> no, no more, no more. So I, I will start saying like what you said is when uh, to give credit for improv, we'll go to UCB and IO and the annoyance. Uh, those will be my three. The early days, that, that would be my three, yeah. Okay, well, you are, you are Professor Besser, so I, <laughs> I, I, I respect what you, what you say, and I trust it. So yeah, uh, when did you guys, because, you know, the, like you were saying, the theater was growing. So to talk about your show, the show that's legendary at IO, or not IO, at UCB, ASCAT, when did that become about? When was that created? Sure. Uh, probably about 1994, the name ASCAT came out of a show where we were screwing around on stage and weren't really respecting the audience. At one point we abandoned the stage entirely. The stage was empty. We were all drunk backstage or to the sides of the stage, just yelling across the empty stage, the word ASCAT to each other (laughs) and laughing as the audience sat there pissed off and befuddled of what the hell kind of show is this I paid for. Yeah. So that, that spirit of uh, improv anarchy, something that we uh, kept in the word ASCAT. And when we moved to New York, we decided to make the improv show on Sundays where we didn't really want to think about it much. We just wanted to show up and do it. Unlike our sketch shows, which we worked so hard on, just wanted to have one show that's kind of lazy, so we're like, let's just do an ASCAT. And that would have been, uh, I guess, 96 in New York. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, an ASCAT moment, uh, because you've been doing th- that that uh, form for years and years and years, is there like a specific moment with a person or with a group of people or a scene that stands out to you? over the the history of doing this not i mean someone was asking me a similar question the other day i I tend to remember the the bad shows and the crazy moments better than moments of uh comedic brilliance (laughs) um i will say we in the years in new york when we were doing it the early years in new york doing ASCAT, we would tape them, we'd videotape them and watch them back and write up the best scenes or the best nuggets of scenes. And uh, so a lot of our gets that came from Upright Citizens Brigade came from ASCAT. And there were a lot of nuggets in there, but there was one sketch where we pretty much wrote it down exactly as we uh improvised it and it, the name of the sketch was the worst thing ever and it's four friends going around a circle playing a game we're like let's uh let's play a game where you say the worst thing you ever done 
and everybody goes around and says it and just gets more and more awful as it goes <laughs> around. And it was one of the most offensive sketches too we probably ever filmed. Um, and it was pretty amazing. It made the air. So uh, I'll, I'll always think of that one. The, well, I, uh, is there, is, can you find that? Like, is it online? Yeah. Well, I can't remember what season it's in. Uh, the scene ends with Ian realizing that he's been in virtual reality uh, uh, for years um, uh, as I have been giving it to him anally in my basement. Yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. That is so weird. But now I want to... Yeah, it's in one of our seasons. It. I can't remember which season it's in. <laughs> well... I think we called it The Worst Thing was the name of the... Huh, worst thing. Okay, all right. I've written it down. I, I'm going to look that up. And uh, so now I want to ask you, and uh, I, I want an honest answer on this one. I mean, you've been giving me all honest answers, but this one especially. So w thinking about like uh, you and Amy and other Matt and Ian all being together and starting this theater, it makes me think of like uh, that movie, that improv movie that came out, Don't Think Twice, where it's like the group mm -hmm. of them. And then um, one of them, King of Michael Key, gets promoted to, like, the movie's version of SNL. Was there ever right. any type of, like, competition or bitterness or pressure to succeed amongst the four of you? Or were you all in it together, all supportive 100% of the time? I'm not sure I understand the question. What do you mean pressure to succeed? Was there, was there a pressure, like, um, when one of you would book something that was big or like a national thing or a movie or TV show, was there a pressure of like, okay, I got to top that. I have to do, if someone got a TV show, I have to do a movie. Or if someone does a movie, I have to have a big speaking role it, amongst the four of you. Anybody that's like that is an awful person. And is there are people like that in Hollywood. And I can think of a few I know, and they just are very bitter people. Mm-hmm. Like comparing yourself to other people and getting your happiness that way in Hollywood is, well, anywhere, I guess, really. Indy is what we're talking about. No. Mm -hmm. um, and we, maybe to answer your question a different way, when we first started, we made a pact that no matter what the opportunity any of us got, we would commit to the sketch group. And in the year leading up to when we did get the sketch group, I'd say each of us got approached about something. Um, and, and we all said, no, we, and there was even some Fox sketch show or something that they were going to do. And I think two of us got asked and we said, no. So in that way, we all stayed true to the group and didn't but it's not like we were known in any way at all so it's not like we were getting offered a ton of things so it wasn't like there's a huge pressure either way but uh and then once the sketch show was over when people started really getting asked to do something i don't know I, it's, it's fruitless to compare your, your own crew to other people people look different and even just looks alone, like how can you compare yourself? That's how you get cast for most things. You have to fit some kind of type. So how can I get jealous of Amy's getting roles? Like we're not up for the same. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when she got SNL, I was like, well, she's already done our show, so why not? Mm-hmm. Like, if she had taken SNL in the middle of our show, that would have been a different thing, and I would have been upset about that. But uh, that's not what happened. Well, it, it makes me happy that you say that, because I remember when the movie came out, uh, I was in, I was doing improv, I was in this improv class, and we talked about the movie, because it was that, I mean, it had just come out, and I was under the opinion that, that you're under, where it's like, you gotta support everybody, and it's not me versus them, you're just competing against yourself, you're trying to be the best person you can be, but I was in the minority of that, where people were saying that they would be bitter, and they would be very upset about that. Well, well, there, there's a nuance that we're not talking about, which is time. And I think in that in that movie, the Mike Birbiglia, Birbiglia character mm-hmm. feels he's running out of time in a way too. So it's not that he's competing; he's competing with other people in his group to a degree, I guess. But also. It's like if that guy gets picked this year, it's just less likely for me to get picked this year. Not that I'm competing with him. I don't want him to have success. It's like for every spot that gets taken up, that's one less spot for me. I can see that attitude for anyone. It's just logical. But uh, and I know they go deeper than that in the movie. There's more bitterness and stuff like that. And I remember in the early days of Chicago when SNL would come to town, and you would hear about casting people from SNL. They were at this show last week, and they really liked so-and-so and didn't care for so-and-so. And when you'd hear that and, and hear that they liked someone who was mediocre, but he was good-looking or something, and you, you could get bitter about that, and everyone would go, oh, I can't believe that guy. He can barely improvise, and they like him. Like That, that, that kind of stuff is understandable, I guess. I would hate to be best friends with someone and they get an opportunity and then you're envious of them. I feel like that's a whole other level Shakespearean drama. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Now to move back to talking about your theater, when did you guys make the decision to add a location in LA and talk about that process of actually moving out there and finding a spot and opening it up? Well, I moved out here before the other guys, and I was here for a couple of years without the theater, basically. <clears throat> and I hated it. Mm-hmm. And my wife hated it, and we, it was such a bummer. We had had such a good time in New York, and it was it's really hard to get on stage without the theater, and it was a really bleak period. So it was always in the back of our head of how can we do this again? We were always kind of looking for a new space, and then one just kind of popped up and took it. Mm-hmm. That That's so crazy. Was it like to move from from New York to L.A., in a way, was it like starting over? Because now you don't have your theater, you don't have your home with you? It was, even to a humiliating way. I, I assumed some of... Uh, <laughs> Like, when I left New York, I could get on any stage in New York, no problem. When I moved to L.A., like, the week I moved there, there was an open mic at a small, small coffee house in my neighborhood, and I went to it, and the host of the open mic, she saw me. She's like, oh, I know you. You're from the Upright Systems Brigade. I'm a big fan of your show. And I'm like, oh, thanks. 
I said, uh, can I, can I get up on the show tonight? I want to do some stand-up. And she said, uh, well, first I need to look at a tape of your stand-up and I'll get back to you. Oh. This is an open mic at a coffee shop with oh. uh, five people in the audience. So I felt like, oh my God, I am really starting over here. If I have to g- give my tape to people who run open mics. Wow. That's for real. That is, but that that's for real to like a next level. Like I'm not even like that's not even impressive. That's just that's ridiculous. Like really, a coffee house? Like come on now. I know, but that's L.A. can be rough that way, and I I think it helped having uh, theaters like ours open make uh, the stage a little more accessible. Right. And so eventually, I mean, obviously now both theaters are running and operating. It's actually crazy. Uh, I've been, I've, I haven't been to your New York location, but I have been to your Los Angeles location. And it was an experience. It was my first time seeing improv outside of Atlanta. I had never seen okay. it before. And it was true. It was like a life changing experience. It was one of those moments where you're like sitting there and you're like, whoa, this is good. This is legit what's happening. And I don't remember what the show was. I know it was four comedians, and they just did a long form, and, like, that was it. It was just long form. But it was fantastic. I loved it. But, look, I can relate to you and say I've been there. So we're we're bonding now. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I, I can relate to that moment, too, for the first time I saw it. Now, uh, for you, are you a, a teacher of improv, or you mainly just perform it? Uh, these days, I don't teach it anymore. Um, like I said, I do have my podcast, which is all like, I have two podcasts, but my professor, Bester One, it's all just comedy theory and talking things I've learned in comedy, so I guess that's the closest I come to teaching. Mm-hmm. And your other one, Improv for Humans, is your completely improvised one. Yeah. So when did what you? About that? When did you? When did you start that? And why did you start that? Um, Scott Ackerman of uh, Comedy Bang Bang. He was saying you guys should do something like Ask Cat on Ill, and I said okay. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a good idea. So I crafted a show that was very much like Ask Cat. And you've done it a long time. I mean, I was on your website earlier today, and there was like 340-something, 350 yeah. episodes. That's a long time. Yeah. Uh, are you are you looking forward? I mean, like I'm saying, are you looking forward to another milestone? You've hit milestone after milestone. But is there someone who hasn't been on the show yet that you want to get? <laughs> I, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fred Willard. I, you know, I, I don't even think – all the people on the show are pretty much my friends. I don't, I don't cast outside of the UCB at all, and I don't really have a desire to either, since we do our own style improv. But uh, and so I don't. It's not like I'm looking for Steve Martin or John Cleese to come on or something like that. No. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's I have musical guests on like after one. Uh, like once a month. So I definitely have a bucket list of musicians I'd like to have on. Okay. Who who is someone just off the top of your head, a musician you'd like to have on? I'd love to have the Mountain Goats on. I'd love to have Craig Finn of the Hold Steady. I'd have 
John K. Sampson of the of the Weaker Than. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have uh, the Eels on. Those are all good choices. Those okay, all, thank you. Those are, <laughs> I approve. If you were if you were looking for my approval on it, I approve of them all because those those were okay. those were good choices. And so, Matt, as we start to uh, wrap up the interview, where do you see? In the future, and as uh, UCB grows and improv and comedy in America and in the world grows, where do you see UCB going from here? Um, if you mean literally going, I don't think anywhere. We, we, at least not in the United States. We've never we thought about before, should we open a theater in Austin or Atlanta or something like that? But... Uh, it is so difficult to open a theater. We don't think we have it in us anymore. Mm. As far as where we go, we've always said we'd like our own TV channel. Excuse me. Bless you. Uh, so that that's a goal of sorts. Have your own. It seems TV more and more pop possible in these days. Mm-hmm. Would the channel be called UCB? Sounds good to me. UCB one. Okay. Perfect. Look at that. We're just creating things now. And so, okay, I like that idea. I like that. I, I really do. To have a comedy channel dedicated to improv. I, yes, I would like to see that. And so, Matt, as my final question for you, and this is kind of like, uh, this is probably the most important question of the entire interview. So, brace yourself here. Uh, but the question is, if you were to give one piece of advice uh, to someone who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give? Um, I mean, if you're going to be honest, if I'm going to be honest, I'd say read my manual because that's all my advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we put, literally put all the advice we know into our manual and we think that our, you know, this is a plug, but this, that's why we wrote it. It's like we specifically wrote our comedy improv manual so that someone who doesn't live in LA or New York or maybe a bigger city or access to a theater that does our kind of improv could learn our type of improv. We think our type of improv is is good for all types of comedies, like learning how to write comedy in general or sketch or sitcom or comedy movies. So, I think that would be a good first step. I mean, the one everyone gives is get up on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after you do that one, what do you do? Right. Well, you go go on Amazon and buy your book, and then you know what to do. There you are, my brother. <laughs> and listen to Professor Besser in Impossible Humans. Listen to And Professor if I may Besser. plug, uh, I'm going to be in Colorado doing my stand-up tour uh, July 5th through 8th. So if any listener wants to find out info and has some friends in Colorado or lives there themselves, then that bester.com to find out about that. We're going to be playing ASCAT at Carnegie Hall on June 27th, if you're going to be in New York then, if you're a New Yorker. Well, that's, that's perfect that you say that, because I was actually just about to ask you, if people want to see you perform or want to learn more about you or UCB, how can they do that? But you answered my question. There you go. MattBesser.com. Well, yes, sir. Perfect. And as the final thing, uh, and because I'm just genuinely, I'm just genuinely curious about this. Um, it, this is a two-parter. Um, one, who is your favorite comedian? And two, do you have a favorite joke? 
Uh, I'm such a bad, do you have a favorite joke guy? Uh, my daughter's now reading a joke book that I had as a kid called, it's called Goofs and Giggles, something <laughs> Giggles. And at least 75% of the jokes are incomprehensible to stupid to, to impossible to understand. Um, but the one I understand as a kid and I've kept in my brain my whole life and now my daughter is repeating is why did the robber take a bath to get a clean getaway? <laughs> and just hearing my daughter repeat a joke to me uh, gives me all the joy in the world. Mm-hmm. Favorite comedian? Um, it's changed through the years, you know. It was, uh, you know, Steve Martin is just one of the best ever, both on stage and on screen. Um, just by all the work together, it would probably be him. Um, but maybe more influential because it influenced my early stand-up and, and the way we did stuff in the UCB would be would be Andy Kaufman. Um, he didn't have so much work to look at, but of the work he did, he was definitely part of my influential, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, those were, I mean, I liked the joke. I, liked, I know, the two that uh, everybody says, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. those, those are my honest answers. Those are both very good. Those are both very, very good choices. Uh, and both good talk show uh, guests. That is true. That is very true. I have seen many, many a talk show appearance with Steve Martin, and I've seen a handful. I haven't seen a lot, but I definitely have seen a handful of Andy Kaufman on talk shows. Um, yeah, his early ones on David Letterman, everyone, every listener look up on YouTube right now. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, yeah. He introduced postmodern humor to, to the world before people even understood what it was. Oh, yeah. Crazy. Oh, yeah. The stuff he did was so influential and so unique. And like you said, postmodern, for sure. 100% for sure. But I, once again, I uh, those are good choices. I approve. Now, uh, Matt, thank you so much again for being on the show. I, re- I really enjoy talking to you, and I, I feel like I learned so much. Okay, well, thanks for having me on. <laughs> and to anybody listening, remember, you can visit us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Talking Late Night, and you can find us on iTunes where you can rate and leave us a review. So thanks again to Matt Professor Besser for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>